What's up, nerds? Welcome to the Bandwagon Fan. This is the show where we talk about all things pop culture and what we're into right now. I'm Josh. I'm Kate. And here we are. We to are talk here. about a book. Yes, we are. I know. First time. This is our first book review. It is. And it's it was Josh's pick. Yes, you can blame me. <laughs> hey, you know what? It was an experience, and I'm glad we took it. But yes. I am too. Oh, I didn't ask how you were. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, it's a very cold and dreary day in New York. The weather has been very Seattle-like, very, very cold and rainy. Um, and my day has been good, other than the fact that one of my coworkers got surprise fired today. <laughs> so oh. that was that was not good. Um, it's sad because he was a he is a very, very sweet old man. And I don't want to say they fired him because of his age, because uh, that would be ageist. But I do know that I don't think he was delivering work up to par, partly because of his age. Oh, no. He, just, he was very much a boomer, but he was not the kind that, that you hate. He's the kind that yeah. actually you love. He had strong grandpa vibes, sweet old man Long Island Jewish guy, like just the <laughs> nicest guy, but yeah. it was kind of coming for a while because he just everybody else was moving at a hundred percent, and he was kind of always around like seventy five. Yikes! On a I Monday know. though, they fired I him on a Monday. No, and he's Jewish, so he already had on the calendar that went day he was taking off for Yom Kippur, no. which is the Day of Atonement. And yeah, I just feel so bad for him because yeah, on a Monday and with no warning and. I know it's sad. Uh, his assistant is still here though, and I and she just was very upset because they had a good relationship. So it's it was a sad it was a sad Monday, but um, but it's okay. I was telling myself be gra- be grateful that I still have my job. So yeah, man, yeah. that'll give you some perspective. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I feel a lot of gratitude today. Um, how are you, Josh? I'm all right. I'm tired as always. I'm always tired. I'm always hungry. I'm always thirsty. So oh, the like status, <laughs> status quo. Yeah. Or uh, yeah, I'm like a mix between the, uh, a small child and an old man. I, yeah. I kind of go back and forth between the two. That's a vibe. Yeah. But yeah, it was actually, it's going to be pretty warm here in the Chicago area. It's going to hit the seventies. What? Oh, today so. was in the forties. And, and then I think the highest it got today was 52. So <sighs> Yeah, yes. well, that's not too far off for us. And uh, somebody who can relate to that Chicago weather yes. is the author of the book that we'll be talking about today. Yes. Erica L. Sanchez, who yes. is most known for, maybe not most known for, but she is famous for writing I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. Fantastic book. Highly recommend. We, uh, I talked about on the on the show, on the podcast uh, a little while back, and she recently released a memoir titled crying in the bathroom so here we are so here we are crying in the bathroom josh is in his bathroom and i am in mine we just finished crying we're ready to talk about the book we are and to start off um in her intro she erica sanchez talks about how um part of the book the reasoning behind the book is being seen is visibility how for her being bookish and brown wanting to create a visibility for other girls who are, who are like that. And um, she comments how women of color praise for the resilience and it's a resilience that comes out of necess- necessity. You either adapt or die. 
Um, and her hope, her purpose, one of the purposes behind this book was to show that women of color are more than caricatures. Um, and so that, that's how she starts us off. And then the first chapter, best chapter title in the world. Yes. It's called The Year My Vagina Broke. And it's it actually, I know that, that I don't know how you felt about this, Josh, but especially because you're a man, um, but it, it's a gripping title because you, my first thoughts were, okay, this is totally going to be about losing her virginity. I, I don't know. Did you, when you opened up to that first page and you see this title for the chapter, did you have any thoughts about what you thought the chapter would be about? So actually, yeah, I did. And like, I just want to like put a, I don't know if it's not a disclaimer, but I feel like a lot of guys, a lot of men would be really uncomfortable reading a book that has that title, mm-hmm. like as a chapter. And to me, it's like, I feel like men need to learn how to be a lot more comfortable talking about women's reproductive health. Mm-hmm. Because to me, I was like, oh, like she's having some sort of problem, like some sort of medical issue. That That is like what I thought, because mm-hmm. like just I I am the kind of person who is comfortable talking about those things. And so mm-hmm. like I've I've talked to women who ha- have uh, disclosed like some different issues that they've had. And so I was like, oh, like it could be not that I understand what half of it means or mm-hmm. obviously to have no experience with it and can't relate. But it, 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 it was on my radar. Wow, that puts you apart from a lot of men already. Oh, <laughs> I'm already does. impressed because I can think of almost no men that I've ever discussed my reproductive health with other than like the occasional occasional boyfriend with the fact that it in some way maybe relates to them or I feel that they need to know about what's going on with my body as we're together. But other than that, I mean, not many men I know have ever felt comfortable enough to talk or listen to or read um about things like that so i've also have bought tampons before and i don't care doesn't bother me (laughs) i will but you also should not get a badge for that i'm not saying this oh no no i shouldn't i agree the tampons should also also be free that's my opinion it should not be taxed the way they are yeah also my opinion i i agree because they are a basic necessity yes um and Josh actually got it right. This chapter is, I would say, well, first off, I think every chapter, the title does have, I think there's like a thread through each chapter and that thread relates to what the title name is. And she kind of bounces a little bit up and down from that, from that line, that thread, but there's always kind of like the main storyline that she comes back to, I, I would say. And so for this chapter, it was about her undergoing a mysterious um, health issues with her vagina and, and basically spending what, like almost all of her twenties, like years trying to figure out what was wrong, but through that discussion and then like with every other chapter, it's like through that kind of storyline, that discussion, she then bounces around. So we talk about in that chapter, things like sexuality and virginity and, you know, um, having sex and what does it mean? What does it like, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for people around you? How they view you? Um, I, I actually really enjoyed that chapter. I thought it was a good intro chapter. What did you think? Yeah, it it really, it eases you into like what to expect. And like for myself, like being half Latino, like she depicts how sexuality is treated in a lot of Latino households, especially Mexican households. 
Um, a lot of my my dad's cousins are Mexican, so I in Guatemala is next to Mexico, so I have the understanding of of that culture and seeing how sexuality was portrayed, where it was this ping pong between desire and shame where there's like so much sensuality in the music and in the culture but then at Mm -hmm. home you're like shamed for for engaging in it or for wanting it and so for me like as a a boy growing up like i I saw it through that perspective and then reading this i got to hear it from a a girl's perspective Mm -hmm. Uh, well as a woman like reflecting on on what it was like being a, a teen girl growing up as a Latina and and trying to like figure out like who she is in that way Mm. and and how, how she needs to kind of like figure, like navigate between what the American culture says, what her Mexican culture says and, and like how women and girls are treated within that. Mm -hmm. I wrote in our notes that I wrote vagina is shame slash power. Um, because kind of like what you just said, it's like, I feel like a woman's body and her sexuality and desire to have sex or the act of having sex. It's like, it's something, and I don't think this is like restricted just to Mexican or Latino households. I think this is to a lot of other cultures and, and um, races and ethnicity, like groups of people. Um, There is so much shame about talking about things like sex in regards to women. It's, it's like, Oh, we don't talk about that or you'd get in trouble for talking about it or you're not supposed to think about it even, you know, whereas I think men have a little more leeway. It might still be a conservative thing that's not talked about a lot, but they can. And I think for women, it's very like, stay away. That's gross. You know, they don't want to know about things like periods. I mean, for the longest time ever, women were basically shunned whenever they were on their periods. That's like the part no one wants to talk about. Um, And then all the health issues too. It's like, it's, it's shame. It's there's something wrong with you because at the same time, I think that the vagina and what it symbolizes also has a lot of power. It's like, you can't have more babies without this thing. You cannot have your lineage continue without this thing. And I think that a woman is strong because of her vagina and everything she goes through with that, with the the periods every month and the giving birth and just so much more. Um, so it's a very like it's it's interesting and I think she wrote about it really well about how she struggled with feeling a lot of shame regarding how her family viewed her but then also shame with her medical issues and not being able to figure out what was going wrong also feeling shame with herself of this there's something wrong with me is this a curse but then at the same time she talks a lot in the chapter 2 about being like very sexually active and very exploratory which I feel like empowers her to be very self-confident to be very rebellious just as a woman but then also in her family in her society in her world um so i i really like that chapter yeah and and um last thing about that that chapter is she mentions how she uh and ends up engaging in an affair with a married guy and, mm-hmm. and i i suspect that experience influenced I'm not your perfect Mexican daughter. Mm-hmm. And, and very much I was like, I bet you, because she she goes into her mental health a lot. I was like, I bet you the book came about her thinking about like, what if I died in the middle of this affair? What would happen around me? Mm-hmm. My, my my thoughts on that. But she also, you know, with the mental health on the flip side, like she also talks a lot about humor 
and how important that is in, I mean, in, in most cultures, but, uh, there, it's, there's a uniqueness to it in Latino culture. She talks about how her laugh offends quote unquote, the whites, mm-hmm. I guess it's really loud, which is, a, a, it's a trademark quality of, of, uh, the Latinos in my family where they are very loud, especially yeah. when they're laughing and, and having a good time. Um, and it, it, it differs by culture. Some people are more low key about it, but that was something where I was like, Oh yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah. No, I think that that's, I think she writes about a lot of things that are relatable. And I think that second chapter it's called down to clown. I think she touches the most on her, Mexican heritage in that chapter. She she makes a lot of cultural references, a lot about what is it like to be funny in a Mexican family. And um but I I I noted that I I still know many people who are white who laugh in a way that they also get lots of stares and lots of like will you be quiet and like what's mm-hmm. wrong with you? Um <laughs> but I'm glad that you can relate and say like hey this is in my family too. Like people that are known for laughing very loud. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, they're especially the women on my mom's side of the family, the white side of the family. Like they, they, uh, they get pretty loud when they laugh. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, yeah, but yeah, but like, but the, the whole humor thing, like Mexican humor is savage. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it feels it, like if you're an outsider and Wendy can attest to this, like she's Latina, but she, she's from Chile. And so she, like when she like was hanging out with my, my family, my dad's side of the family, she's like, you guys are so mean to each other. But it's like, no, like we're just playing like that. That's just how they joke around. Mm-hmm. And, and like, there's pros and cons to it. Like you learn how to build a thick skin mm-hmm. because it's like, then you go to school and some kid makes fun of your hair. It's like, dude, my, my parents, you know, will shred me a new one and tear me down. Like whatever you say, it's not going to affect me. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever heard of the movie? Real women have curves. That, have you heard have, of that? No, I'm not familiar with that. That is a movie that was made in the 90s and it's uh, the stars America Ferreira, who actually I think reviewed this book. Oh, okay. um, but it's a it's she's it's she's a teenager in L.A. in the 90s from a Mexican family. And basically the entire movie, her mom, her sister, her dad, her grandpa, they're all telling her you're so fat and they're calling her like gordita and like oh yeah literally like just shredding her and there's so many scenes where i'm like oh my god if i was her i would have just cried (laughs) but it's like she just serves a diss right back at them like her mom will call her fat and she'll just be like well you're fat too mom and like it's just like it's a great movie it's another it's something that i'm like i i kept actually waiting to see if erica would mention it at all because it felt very similar to this book like um, very like rebel Mexican daughter in the nineties, you know, figuring ah. out who she's meant to be such a great movie. But, but anyways, yes, it was like, I recently watched that movie after I'd finished this book and it was like, Oh wow. Like they're mean to each other. They're really, really mean. Um, but it's like, everybody takes it and they just throw it back. And then you realize that it's like, Oh, well it's because they love each other. It's like, we love each other so much that we can say this and only we can say this. Oh yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have to check that out now. I, I can't believe I haven't seen that before. Very good. Highly recommend. Yeah. And then she also drops a nugget of wisdom in this chapter. I don't know if it was original to her. Like, I, 
I'm not sure if you've heard it somewhere else, Mm -hmm. but she says the relationship we have with ourselves is the most important relationship we will ever have. Yet no one never talks about it. We are conditioned to be afraid of solitude. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm, I'm sure I read that because I read the whole book, Mm -hmm. but I didn't, I don't remember that until now hearing you say it again. Okay. Well, cause Um, for me as an introvert, I'm like, yeah, I get that. I wish other people understood that. Like being alone like loneliness and solitude are two different things mm-hmm. and solitude is a beautiful thing if you understand how to practice it and to enjoy it for what it's worth. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a really cool because like she goes all over the place in this book. And so that was like a really cool, like I would call it like a quiet moment throughout mm-hmm. uh, this this book. Yeah, she has. A, I think there's a lot of times I regret for not writing more in my book. I There'd be times where I wanted to underline something she would say. But then I was like, oh, well, I don't want to write in my book because I always feel like that's like, you know, tainting it or something. But oh, now, same. I'm like, it's, it but now, goes against my religion. It goes. Yeah, it feels wrong to me. But yeah. now I'm like, oh, I should have done that because there were so many times where she would say something that I was like, oh, this is like this captures exactly how I'm how I felt at times. Um, but I agree with that. That's like a really beautiful quote. I hope that that we actually I hope if that's hers, that we see it more in the future one day. If there's a quote to be attributed mm-hmm. to her, that's a really good one. Because yeah. I agree, it's like people will spend so much time getting to know other people more than themselves. And it's like at the end of the day, the only person that you're ever stuck with forever is yourself. So. 100%. And, and for, for Erica Sanchez, like a big uh, time in her life of, of self-exploration, I mean, a lot of this book is about that, is when she went to Spain mm-hmm. in the chapter called Back to the Motherland. And uh, towards the beginning of that chapter, she talks about how being called Mexican was seen as an insult. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, like it definitely was where I went, like most of the kids I hung out with were white because like, like being bicultural, biracial, like I I can pass as, as white depends Mm -hmm. how much sun I get to be honest. And like what my haircut looks like and all this, all these other (laughs) things. But majority of the time, like in that at that age, I I looked and acted white. So like I couldn't hang out with the other Latino kids because they're like, you're just you're a white kid. Like you don't belong with us. Mm-hmm. And so when I with my white friends, like there was always the joke of like, oh, you dirty Mexican, blah, blah, blah. Where And like being like saying calling someone Mexican was actually an insult. Mm-hmm. Like It wasn't a fact. It was an insult. And so when she mentioned that, like I I don't know, like how many people can relate to that or have heard that, but I, I like that hit home for me. I was like, wow, I, I've, I've seen that. I've experienced that. Mm -hmm. That's something that I think she gets really well in this book is that she, she's really good about writing about how hard it is to be a person of color, all the bad parts about it. And as a person, as myself, who's white, I'm, I almost just said, well, I'm European, but it's white. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't identify very much with the white that she talks about because I'm more like, I don't know. I identify as Croatian. That's more what I think. But, but again, I'm still white and I still get that card. I get to pass through society with a lot more ease. And I think that reading this book as a white person, it really did open my eyes up more. And it, and it made, there were times where I felt uncomfortable reading certain things that she would write about, but I was like, this is good for me. I need to be uncomfortable. I need to hear her perspective of being a person of color, of being Mexican, of like you just said, like being in situations where it's like, 
something you should be proud of is actually like considered an insult, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I, that was something that I am grateful to this book for, um, for, for making me read things that maybe I would have not read before. I'm yeah, glad you well, threw those things in. Yeah. And to your point about identifying as Croatian and not like quote unquote white, there's this Irish comedian named, uh, David Nihil. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't. He, he talks a lot about like racial comedy stuff. Like he talks a lot cause he actually, he, I think he's fluent in Spanish mm. and a lot of people might not know this. There's a lot, a lot of Irish people went to Mexico and settled there. Um, I think in like the 18th or 19th century, they were sent there to fight and they were like, no, we actually have a lot in common with these people. And so they just stayed there. So there's yeah. like a significant Irish population there. And for him, he's like, I don't have white guilt. He's like my, my country, Ireland, like we've never enslaved somebody. We've never invaded somebody. We yes. pick our own food. It's like, I don't understand white guilt. That's he's like, I have I a lot in common. Say- Croatians are the same. Croatians have never colonized, never owned slaves. Well, I shouldn't say they, maybe it's like some Croatians, whatever, but Croatians as a people, as a nation, they, they did not own slaves. They never colonized. They grow their own food. They're a small, tiny country. They've been invaded constantly by everyone around them for all of eternity. They actually used to be slaves. They used to be slaves and sold to Turkey. They, during, oh, um, wow. Yeah, there was a time where Croatians they were considered ethnic slaves. They and and also in Europe there's colorism. I mean, yeah. Croatians, Serbians, Bosnians, Macedonians, Albanians, they have darker complexion, they're more olive skinned. They do get treated differently by the more white Europeans. So I kind of agree because with that comedian where it's like I don't really feel white I mean I feel white guilt because of authors like her that are really good at making me realize, oh, I've gotten life pretty good in some ways compared to mm-hmm. you. But then at the same time, there'll be things that I read that I'll be like, I don't, I don't want to be grouped with those whites because I'm not like those whites. I come from a people that was also at one point enslaved and, you know, has been, um, what's the word um invaded my my Mm -hmm. people's nation has been invaded by countless other aggressors throughout history and same thing yeah no no colonizing like we i (laughs) I actually don't really i shouldn't have anything to feel bad about but i know that i still do because i know that when i look in the mirror i still have i still have that skin color that kind of gets life a little easier yeah and like it's complicated i i think in this day and age we simplify it too much in a rush to try to like quote unquote, make things right. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, he's a rapper, poet, activist, propaganda. He's from LA. Mm, what's the name? Propaganda. Oh, that's, oh, oh, no, I don't know. That, that's his, that's his stage name. Um, so like his dad was a black Panther. So like he grew up like in the movement mm-hmm. and even like, he has a song like where he recognizes like not all white people are, are quote unquote white. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, like the Bolsheviks and, and the Celtics and like all these like ethnic mm-hmm. plights and, and subjugation, like it's more complicated than yeah. people try to make it. Um, you just reminded me of something too when you talked about the Irish comedian, because I remember watching a video once where people were like saying like, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm this. And there was a white lady, redhead and when she spoke, she said, I'm Irish. Every other person who was white had said, I'm white. She had said, I'm Irish. Mm. And it's like, yeah, 
don't be afraid to stand out and say, no, don't group me. <laughs> don't, don't just instantly group me by looking at me. You don't know my background, my history, what my people have been through. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that. Um, I wish that Erica would have maybe touched on that a little bit more because I do think she was very quick to group all white people into the exact same category that they're maybe, I want to say they're bad. Um, but, uh, but I do appreciate though, that she talked so much about being Mexican, being a person of color, being Brown. That was, that was really great. And especially, yeah, like going back to this chapter of her being in Spain, um, she talks too about how, when she was there, she chose to stick to speaking Mexican Spanish and not falling into speaking Spain Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was like a really great little act of rebellion for her to do because (laughs) Spain yeah. colonized Mexico and yeah. she's back in the quote motherland, um, which is funny because when I started that chapter, I thought she was going on a trip to Mexico mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was like, oh, she's going to Spain. Um, and and she shared with us a lot of her adventures, which throughout this whole book too, she, she has gone on so many crazy and wild adventures. Um, yeah. She, she has done a lot of traveling. <laughs> yes. No, like she's a lot. Over. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I've never been to that place. That must have been cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, good good for her. Good for her. That's awesome. I think traveling makes you a more well-rounded person, gives you perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. and then move, moving forward um, into the next chapter where like things start to get kind of heavy where the next chapter, La Mala Vida, she talks about her mental health struggles. Depression seems to be a thread throughout her life. Mm-hmm. And... I found it really interesting that she kind of like had this disdain for the way Christianity depicts suffering, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I, I mean, I guess the, there's so many flavors of Christianity. So, I mean, I guess. Yeah, that's pick, another one that's If you pick the wrong prove. flavor, it's like, yeah, these people are crazy. I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, but she found solace in, in, uh, in Buddhism, uh, which I, I thought was kind of I, like I, I didn't it didn't track. Like, I didn't understand it. Her like journey like through into Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And that's just not a perspective that I was able to connect with, which is fine. I'm sure there are other people who have. I mean, like I, I, I mean, I, I've taken a couple in college. I took different religion classes, so like explored like the different major faiths, and I saw merits in in different ones. But yeah, for me, I was just like, oh, okay, like if it works for you, that's cool. Yeah, I think it does work for her because I think with if Buddhism is to teach you to not have any, no wants, no desires, no connections to this world, to truly let yourself be free, let yourself be one with the universe, let go of these things. Through reading this book, I actually found that I understood her becoming a Buddhist more in the later chapters after hearing some of the other things that she goes through in life and realizing that, oh, some of these worldly issues, these worldly responsibilities, societal responsibilities, some, and then all the wants and desires that the world pushes on you seem to really stress her out. And I think those are some of the things that make her feel this anguish and anxiety in life. Um, okay. And she later talks in other chapters about how like she really doesn't like, you know, commitments that feel like too much work that they're like. I feel like that applies to a lot of people. When something feels like it's too much work, it weighs on you and then you want to do it less and, and then it turns you off to it. And 
you get to a point where you just like, you hate that thing then. And I think with Buddhism, it's like, it's teaching you to have no connections, let go, be free, be empty, be blank, Mm. you know, be good, try to be good to others, be good to yourself, you know, and knowing her the way that I know her as just reading this book, to me, it makes sense that she would, that that would, that religion would fit for her, would be make her feel comfortable. Cause I think that her best life is learning to let go of those things that seem to really stress her out and cause her, her anguish and depression. Oh yeah. No, actually now that you put it that way, that totally makes sense. Um, and then like actually the following chapter, if equal, I move on to the next chapter. Um, another great chapter title. Do you think I'm pretty circle? Yes or no. I, I, that's, I think that's something a lot of, and I think it's, I correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's fair to say like a lot of, of young girls, a lot of women in general, like beauty standards is something that can weigh down on you mm-hmm. and like something that can be desirous. And I guess for Buddha, like to go through the Buddhist perspective, being able to let go of some of that mm-hmm. is probably really helpful and healthy. Oh yeah. Learning how to let go of male gaze is probably one of the hardest things in the world and something I'm still working on and learning about. Um, but not even just male gaze, anyone's gaze, truly. Mm. I think that it's easy to go straight to male gaze because it feels more intimidating. But yeah. even when I'm walking down the street, women, teenagers, whatever, looking at me, it's like the thought of people looking uh, at you God. and instantly judging you. That's yeah, it's, it's terrible. And I think that as women, we feel that more. Okay. Um, it, well, and then she adds a layer to it of like brown kids – specifically in, in like in the West and America, I think she says in America, don't feel as beautiful a, as white kids and how even for her being ethnically ambiguous. And like, I, I have that experience as well. Like it, it can be kind of hard because you blend into both places, both worlds, but you mm-hmm. also don't belong in either one. Yeah. And like, for me, like, yeah, again, like I can pass as so many different things. And, and like, there were times in my life, like, probably like middle school through high school, like middle school through high school, where it was like, if I got too dark, it was like, Oh, like you're a dirty Mexican, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. Like you're too dark. Mm -hmm. But then like, I'm with my, you know, Mexican Guatemalan family. They're like, Oh, you're, you're too white. So it's like, I, I don't know, man, where do you want me to be? (laughs) Yeah. I know that for my mom and her sister and my grandma, that was hard for them being Croatian in America in the seventies, eighties, things like that, because they also like look kind of white, but also there's always like something about them that looks very different than Betty Smith down the street. Who's blonde and blue eyed. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. there's like that thing of like, okay, you like kind of fit in, but you also like totally don't fit in. And like a lot of that comes with the looks. Um, But, but I agree. Yeah. It's like uh, she, to move on a little bit within that chapter, she talks too about how it's like now we live in this world where it's like white people are doing whatever they can to look like people of color doing lip fillers, doing even like BBLs, which I don't know. Do you even know what that is, Josh? Oh God, no, <laughs> that um, this is not made up. This is real. It's like a surgery that people do to get their butt and thighs enhanced so that they look more curvy. It's almost uh, okay. like that getting, surprised me. <laughs> it's like injections into your butt and thighs. Um, but yeah, it's crazy that we live in this world now um, with that. I don't even know what the right word is like appropriation of. A- yeah. Well, just the beauty standards. Cause like, 
I think it was like the 18th, 19th century, a, a quote unquote boyish figure was attractive. And like yeah. now it's like a now dump truck. Yes. Dump truck. Yeah. I saw uh, that from Jen McKay. I would Thanks. Say, uh, <laughs> curvy. Let's say curvy. I like curvy better. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a weird, it's beauty. Beauty's always changing. If anything, actually funny enough that we're talking about this, I recently saw in the news that um, Kim Kardashian is reversing. She's actually like, apparently some tabloid recently posted that she has gotten like, she like took, she like undid her BBL surgery. She undid one of her breast enhancement surgeries. And that now apparently the more thin look is coming back into style. And I'm like, of course people with money can just like pay yeah. to literally have a whole new body. Um, while the rest of us just have to like, have the body we were born with. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, yeah. Er, like Erica Sanchez talks about how for herself, she, I, I look at myself quote, uh, and I see multitudes mm-hmm. and like for myself, like I, same thing. Like I took, I've taken a DNA test. Like there's a lot mm-hmm. in there, man. And like yeah. there was stuff, there was stuff I knew and other stuff where I was like, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and something I thought was really cool is how, and like, I, it took me a while to notice this, but she was able to admit that she's attractive. Yeah. She's like so and so, like be, being a beautiful woman. I was like, and, and at first I was like, okay, whatever. And then I thought it was kind of weird. And then she kept saying it. I was like, hey, like good for you. Like be confident. I in agree. That. No, I agree. She she even makes I remember reading a sentence where she said something like, I'm lucky enough that she ha- she she's not she doesn't have a body that makes her stand out or make people feel uncomfortable. This is regardless mm-hmm. of the skin color. This is more about body size. She had some line about how she can, she can be in a room and it's like, she's not a threat. You know, she's not uncomfortably large. She's not a person who people would be staring at because they're either emaciated or they're larger. Um, and she, and I'm glad for her too. I'm happy for her that she is happy with her body because I think there's so much else in this book that we find that she's unhappy with about herself and a lot of more internal mental health issues that I feel bad for her. So mm-hmm. if anything, this felt almost like a win of a chapter to be like, wait, like you you like how you look. And she says too, I think in this chapter that she now has a wardrobe full of colorful prints. Mm-hmm. She used to think that her mouth was too big. Now she loves to wear bright red lipstick and has yeah. realized that if anything, her best feature is her mouth. And so I think that this chapter, it was actually like a, a really positive one um, where I think yeah. most of the theme was positive because by the end of it, it felt like she really was embracing to love herself. And like that quote you said about her seeing herself and seeing multitudes, it's like, she has that pride in herself and her heritage and everyone who came before her to make her be and look exactly how she looks. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. I like how you said that. Like it felt like a win because then going forward again, it gets, it gets dark again, crying in the bathroom, the next chapter talks about her depression and like kind of bouncing back by finding meaning in her work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after that, uh, the chapter I like to enjoy, I don't know if you have anything to say about crying in the bathroom chapter. Uh, like it can be encompassed in like depression and fighting depression. It was, I mean, the only notes I took when I was reading that chapter was just that I felt a lot of shock sometimes Mm -hmm. in the chapters where she would really talk about her, 
her her relapses with depression that were like the bad ones. Yeah. It was jarring to read because I have struggled with depression. Okay, my it's a, it's in my family history as well. But reading some of the things that she went through, things that she did, things that she said, it's it is still shocking because it's like wow, like mm-hmm. I cannot imagine that. Like my life, my depression, my struggles never got to that point. Um mm-hmm. So crying in the bathroom was, it was hard. I mean, she writes about a time in her life that she was really, really depressed. And it's it's hard to read that, but it's also, I don't know, it was refreshing in a way to have such yeah. openness. But it's, I mean, it's hard. There's times I was reading it and I would literally just be like, open mouth, like, whoa, like, this is insane. Like, this, this is crazy that this is what happened. So... Yeah. And like, like for me, it's like same thing where I'm like, I can relate a little bit, but not to this extent. Mm-hmm. So like, it's one of those things where like, you just have to read it to like really understand it. Like I, nothing I can say can really do it justice because it's her mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to commentate on it too much other than, yeah, yeah. Like I, I understand what that, some of that is like, and I've seen some of that too, but yeah, and it, it, it was really sad. And then the, the following chapter I like to enjoy she talks about this European fling that she has. Mm-hmm. Um, and then her, it seems like she has um, a seasonal affective disorder, mm-hmm. which to- like being in the Midwest and like you're out in the East Coast, like I totally get that. Like the winters here are br- brutal. Mm-hmm. Spring is beautiful. Summer is beautiful. But the winter, the winters are, they're rough, man. Yeah. No, I, it's already winter. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, winter has already started in New York basically. And it is yeah. cold. My toes are basically numb right now. Um, I don't like it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, maybe her coming back from her trip in Europe definitely brought back on the depression. And also in this chapter, we find out that this time in her life was post divorce, um, Mm -hmm. which I liked that she wrote about how she started dating again. And despite talking about the depression, she also does talk a lot about how, as she's older now, because at this point in the book, she's about 32. She is like, I don't care anymore what these men think of me. I go in one date. If I don't like them, I don't talk to them again. And I don't care. And I'm not going to try to please them. I'm not trying to try to seduce them. I'm not going to find value in dating a guy unless I really like them. And she starts to, I think, get a lot more serious about who she's looking for in a partner. Um, And that chapter also felt a little bit like I don't want to say that one was so much of a win, but it did feel like, okay, I feel her getting older with this chapter. It kind of like each yeah. chapter, it feels like you, it, it is kind of loosely following in chronological order her life. Um, but then as we get to the next chapter, Difficult Son, I think this gets to probably maybe one of the hardest times in her entire life uh, based on what she wrote about in this whole book. Mm-hmm. And, but it starts off so hopeful where her childhood dreams came true like in her early 30s where she she's a published writer she's teaching at an ivy league school and like for me like i i totally get that like i'm an aspiring writer like Mm -hmm. i'm i'm i just turned 31 so i was like i i get that like i like i would love to be in that position right now uh and hopefully like it happens soon so i was like oh cool this is so awesome like i I get what she's feeling and then boom bipolar 2 diagnosis Mm mm-hmm Oh yeah. And she gets that diagnosis. And then despite all those like amazing things, those, those, uh, 
what's the word? Like milestones, but not just milestones. Cause that sounds like something that everybody reaches. I mean, like these are like accomplishments, accomplishments. That's yeah, the word I'm looking yeah. for. She has these amazing accomplishments. She has this amazing um, education. She's gotten to work some really interesting jobs, write Interesting articles. And I think at this point too, yeah, her books, two, her two books had been published. You would think that she is like on a high. And it was this chapter that I was like, I kept thinking, I'm like, okay, like, I know it doesn't happen because she's here writing this book now. Mm -hmm. But I also felt like every other page, I was like, almost reading a fiction book and waiting to see this character find out that they commit suicide. Yeah, yeah. Every other chapter, I mean, every other page, she was writing about how she was getting to these points where she's on the phone crying, calling her on again, off again, boyfriend talking about how she's about to do it, you know, or, you know, deciding who's going to get her cat or, you know, at one point she, um, checks herself back into a, um, inpatient care at a hospital. But even through that, it is like, you just, it feels like every other day, every multiple times a day, she's thinking about it and you're reading this and I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so sad. Like this woman is, has a quote, great life. And yet, you know, she's, she's thinking about killing herself every day. Yeah. It's definitely like one of the hardest chapters to read, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think like the, the, the title crying in the bathroom, like of, of the book, like it really encapsulates like this, um, part of her life where it's like on the outside looks great, but then she goes home and she goes and cries in the bathroom. So no one can hear her kind of mm-hmm. idea. Um, and, and like something, a lot of people, I mean, I guess if you're reading this book, maybe not as much, but she ends up getting pregnant and the like, horm- I, th- I think it was like, you know, obviously like the hormones are going crazy when you're pregnant. And then she's also got already got like her own like mental health issues, struggles. Like on top of that, it, it got to the point where it was like the pregnancy was like killing her emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she decides to like she she's considering like and is like contemplating like getting an abortion to like save herself from from taking her own life mm-hmm. i i I, I don't want to yeah i honestly like i i will never understand that experience yeah. so i don't want to say a whole lot about it other than like it's heartbreaking and it is heartbreaking like, I, and yeah again as a woman i've i've never been pregnant i've never had to deal with that those thoughts um, about, you know, abortion or carrying full term, but no, I agree. I, I don't even want to speak very much on it cause I can't relate either. And it's just hard. It's, it's very sad to read someone's firsthand perspective, talking about how much they want to be in a better state of mind to take care of this baby, to have this baby. But then at the same time, every day thinking too, that this is ruining me. This is like, I, she was saying like, I can barely get myself a glass of water when I'm having an anxiety attack. How would I ever care for someone else's life? And I think it's almost like, I think the anxiety of knowing that she would have to take care of somebody else. I think that like contributed to the thoughts of like, I think I should just die because mm-hmm. I can't take care of myself. I can't take care of anyone else. You know, what's the best solution? Just nix all of me. And that it's it's a sad chapter, but you get to the end of it and, you know, she she goes through the inpatient care. She actually tries electroshock therapy. She ends things with um, the on-again, off-again boyfriend, Marcus. 
and finally gets to that point where she, I don't want to say she moves on because I feel like she's somebody who the mental health stuff is always going to be there. And it's probably always a bit of a fight Mm. to go on each day by day, but she does get there. I do think, and she actually, you know what, with the title being called difficult son for that chapter, I was wondering if it had anything to do with, um, she talks about a group therapy session where they have to like pick a song and she picks, here comes the sun on the cover by Nina Simone. Mm. So I'm wondering if it's like, this was a time of a lot of darkness, but by the end of this chapter, I, I do think like the sun comes out because she does make it through. And it seems like these very strong suicidal thoughts do eventually pass. Yeah. Well, and like, she's from Chicago like, and like, I, that, that, you know, that, that's my area. And so to me, like with that, that makes totally makes sense. But to me, like the image, mental image I have is a sunrise in Chicago during the winter, mm. like going into spring where it's like, pitch black for most of the day and then like seeing that seeing that sunrise in the morning like there's that little glimmer of hope um mm-hmm. and, and then and then it, that takes us into you know doing the the shock therapy which people most myself included really only have only seen it in movies where they torture people with it mm-hmm. like it, it saves her life really it like helps kind of reset things a little bit and then yeah. that brings us to the last chapter i'm not your perfect mexican mom where she starts dating and like you were saying she knows more what she's looking for Mm -hmm. and she's she's not going to settle she knows what she wants and she knows like what's going to make her happy um i thought it was it was like i i kind of get it where because she's like i'm not going to date any white guys Mm -hmm. and like to me like when i like when i was dating before wendy i was like yeah i'm not really into white girls so i get that but she was like oh for my mental health i can't date white guys (laughs) Whatever works for you. I I mean, I agree. Like if that's, yeah, if, if, well, it's, I mean, also maybe it comes down to attraction. Maybe it's like, they're yeah. just not attractive to her, not just because they're white, but because of being white, there's maybe other traits about them that come with yeah. that, that, that are a turnoff to her. But I'm glad she, this chapter I would say is the upper everyone needs after you read difficult signs <laughs> yeah. because yeah. it's like. I don't know. This chapter honestly did feel like I was reading the epilogue to a happily ever after fairy tale. It's like everything yeah. goes right by this point in the book. She finds the man she's meant to be with. She leaves their first date knowing this is the man I want to marry. And it seems like their relationship. I mean, maybe there was hard times. She didn't write about it at all, but at least the way she presents it in this book in this closing, it seems like this relationship was the most effortless, the most fulfilling for her the one that she is able to just start and feel so confident and happy in you know they they move in together within five months he has kids from a previous relationship and also i don't know what you thought about this but i did find it a little hard to transition knowing that the last chapter she had had an abortion and then i remember early on in this chapter this last chapter she's saying that she's looking for someone who would be dad material that she knows she wants to have a child. Mm -hmm. And I, I personally wish maybe she would have written a little bit more about how she got to that point of knowing that she eventually does want to have a child. And I know that, yes, I think the abortion is more so much about, it was for her mental health and for her, you know, because of the suicide thoughts. Right. Mm -hmm. But I did still kind of feel like it was very quick. You know, it was like only a page or two ago. This, she's oh, okay. 
it was it was yeah. i don't know i wish maybe she could have written a two to three, one to two pages maybe saying like okay I thought about it. I've worked on things. I've realized I do eventually want to have a child. And this time it's going to be different. The pregnancy, it, but whereas like when she meets Will, it just seems very quick. Like I want to have a kid. Yeah. She instantly is like, I got pregnant. It was an easy pregnancy. Uh, the birth was fine. Like it, I do feel like the last chapter was almost a little rushed. It was very like mm-hmm. this good thing happened. And then this thing, good thing happened where it was like the rest of this book. It's like, we really go in depth with all these other ups and downs and really go into them and it kind of felt like this last chapter again like a fairy tale wrap up yeah. chapter <laughs> it was like i we moved into a nice little house we smoked weed every day in the backyard i love my husband we got married i had the baby like life is good i'm a stepmom and a mom and like you know it just felt so like instantly like life is wonderful and i'm like but we just read a chapter about how you yeah, we're literally crying every day and almost killing yourself. Like, I don't know. I kind of, I could have added a little wiggle room. That's my critique. I would say. Yeah. No. No. That's a good point. The pa- the pacing. It was just like bam, happiness. Yeah. It was which, very I mean, yeah, like happy. Which I was yeah. happy for her. I, yeah, exactly. It it's like good. Yeah. It's like I can't be mad about it. Like I'm happy for you. No, I'm very happy that her life picked up because it seems like she has endured so much sadness yeah. and struggle. That it was good, but the pacing definitely felt like yeah. As as the reader, it's like it was jarring. Yeah, it was jarring. The, yeah. yeah, from a human perspective, it's like oh yeah, like she's happy. But as you're as a reader who's like engaged in this narrative and the story, it's like it's like whoa. Um, but yeah, yeah. Ha- ha- some it seems like a happy ending. Happiness wins, and you. I see you wrote this in your notes. She finds a life she always wanted and i think yeah. she writes too at the end that like that's all she ever wanted in life was to feel alive mm-hmm. and i despite the last chapter and the abortion i think having her daughter which is kind of the ultimate part of this book is she finally becomes a mother and has her daughter i think her daughter i don't want to say her daughter gives her a reason to live but i think having her daughter makes her realize that like me being alive is important because now I can create this life mm-hmm. and I can teach somebody else about life. And I don't know. It's, it's, it's very beautiful. I, I, I totally agree. Um, final thoughts, final thoughts. Um, this book is very intense. I would say it was not what I was expecting at all because of just how gritty and how raw she writes, very open. There was a lot that made me uncomfortable in ways that I appreciated. And then there was other things that made me uncomfortable more because I disagreed with her. And I wish I could have spoken with her about why I disagree and had a discussion. But mm-hmm. she's a big time author. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little old me. We're never going to meet. It's fine. You know, um, and I, I feel like, okay, that I'm allowed to have that gripe, the, the, the few gripes that I have with her, um, because I'm allowed to have my critiques just as much as she's allowed to, because she wrote about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I am glad I read this book as for recommending it. I think, I think I would only recommend it to some people. I think to maybe friends who I think could get something out of this. I think to a lot of other people, they might not like it. And 
would quickly give up on it. Cause there was even times where I felt like giving up on this book. Um, but I am glad I finished it. No, cool. Cool. Um, yeah. Like I, my, my thoughts kind of echo that as well, where it's totally raw. Like she has no regard for what anyone else thinks about her, which is kind of refreshing to see that honesty from a Brown woman, because a lot of times like that's not a voice that gets projected very loudly outside mm-hmm. of like your own community. And like, she's admittedly, she's cynical. Like she, she admits that herself, but at the same time, like it, it takes a lot of courage to, to share those things. And like the tone perfectly matches the person who like reading, like you feel like you get to know her a little bit. And so the tone kind of matches who I perceive her to be. And it gives you like a full access to like how she views the world, like, like what her worldview looks like. And, and like some of them, like there, there's, there's like shared experiences, both for women and then also for for like brown women and women of color, like th- those are experiences that I might not understand, but mm-hmm. other women might. And I, I, there were times where I was like, it felt a little sensational where she's like, we live in a white supremacist society. And I was like, could you elaborate on that more, please? I know she there's a lot of times where she will say something, but it's literally just a sentence. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, 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 like please go on about this because you just said you just dropped a bomb yeah. you dropped something and you did not explain where you're coming from with this. Yeah. And, and like overall, like you kind of get this feeling and like for me, I was like, I feel like you really don't like white people. Yeah. And like, I want to ask you about that because you are biracial. It's like, there is a whole half of you that is white. How does this make you feel? You know? Yeah. So like, what in, what's interesting is like making fun of white people. Like it's a very like brown thing to do. Like mm-hmm. my dad's like we make fun of white people all the time, but like it's joking. Like we're we're joking about it. There's a kernel of truth behind the jokes, but we're not oh. like oh we hate white people. But or, it's joking like yeah. oh white people can't dance. White people food is bland. Yeah, it, you yeah. know white people have golden retriever and they're blonde and they're you know what like those things. Yeah, the, I'm like those are. Those are little funny jabs, you know, that are, you said, a kernel of truth. But there's times where in this book, I really felt like she's just like, no, like, fuck them. I hate them. And it was right. just like, <laughs> I was like, okay, like, damn, you just really chose to just hate a whole race. Okay. And, and, and like, it's hard to tell, like, like if she's being serious or if she, that's just like her way of joking. Because, again, that's something like that I have in common with like the brown side of my family where we'll like say like some really outrageous things that sound racist, but like it's a joke. Whereas when she's writing it, like I can't tell. Mm-hmm. And, and like for me being bicultural, biracial, like, it, it, it's, it's a message I hear a lot where it's like my white for my, the white culture criticized the brown side of me, the brown side kind of criticized the white side. Mm-hmm. There's joking like in both sides, but it's like, it, it's like a constant reminder of like, you don't really belong here. You don't belong there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's it's hard to hear that and like she says my my dna test or like she sees a multitude multitudes in herself mm-hmm. like i see that too like and like i said earlier like my dna test showed that like i do have a lot of different places and cultures um in myself and so i don't know it's important to like have have like some sort of like goal to, to me there's a difference between anger and bitterness mm-hmm. yes be angry at white supremacy yes be angry at like colonialism Yes, be angry and these injustices, but do something with it. Like mm-hmm. anger is a good emotion; it causes you to to take action. Mm-hmm. Bitterness is it, it, it's anger, but you don't do anything useful with it. Yeah, I felt um, a lot of bitterness in this book. You, 
Josh, you are so smart. <laughs> I'm like, oh, thanks, Josh, you, you got it. You hit the nail on the head because I was talking about this with Alex, my boyfriend, who's actually a quarter Mexican, but mm-hmm. incredibly white passing. Yeah. One of the wise people looking you've ever seen. Yeah. But um, I remember early on in the book, why I struggled at times to keep reading it was because I felt this almost like unnecessarily strong level of extreme bitterness towards white people. And mm-hmm. I felt like I was being, I felt like I was being told like, this book isn't for you, so don't read it. And, but I was like, but I want to read this book. I want to get to know you. I want to know about your life as, as a Latino woman from Chicago, but it can't help but feel like you hate me already. Mm-hmm. And I'm just your reader, you know, and I don't know. No, I, I I totally get that. There were times where I was like, "Yeesh." Part of that also was because I had like prior to reading this, I read Viktor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*, mm-hmm. and Viktor Frankl was a Jewish Jewish psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and his whole idea was like meaning, like finding the purpose of, of life is the meaning of life, and like that's what got him to survive. Mm-hmm. And he like he didn't believe in collective guilt, and, and like he like just goes into all these different things. And so going from that perspective to this, where there's a lot of, of bitterness was a little jarring. Um, so that's where I was coming from when I, when I was reading this book and it can, I, I suppose it could be cathartic for people. The negativity can make it kind of hard to stay engaged, but there's a, a, an honesty that, that, that um, makes it relatable. And it's a perspective. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, I, I can't understand. And so I think yeah. it's a great book to get that perspective uh, of a Latina woman growing up in American society and, and like you, I, I, th- I would selectively recommend this book c- because I think you need to be a certain kind of person and have like a certain amount of emotional intelligence to, to get something good out of this. In my, in my opinion, um, I think it's important for, for, for public figures, authors specifically, and, and any creative to think about the impact their art will have on society as a whole. Like what, what kind of energy are you putting out there? Um, so yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this book, um, for all of its, for the, uh, different faults that I saw within it, it, it still was an enjoyable read. She's a very talented writer. Um, and I wish her the uh, more continued success. Yes. We wish you the best, Erica. <laughs> I'm glad your life is, is, is what you wanted. Um, if you're listening, uh, but to all of our other listeners, thank you for sticking it out with us on this book review. This was our first one, hopefully another's to follow. Um, if you like this episode, please let us know. Just like it, like it, click the like button or send us a comment, send us a review, share it. Let us know what you think. Um, we're on all the socials. You can let us know on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Um, and you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining Josh and I on this, on this book review. Adios. The bandwagon fan podcast is hosted by Josh Jimenez, Alex Mogosa, and me, AJ Soy. Our show is produced by Kate Smith and edited by your boy, AJ. Our social media is managed by Natalia Kokulia, and our theme song, Lush Waves, is provided to us by Taylor Lewin of Underscore Audio. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.